Wood Mackenzie's online future-facing commodities forum is back for its third year. Join us online on March the 27th for an open discussion with our experts on renewables, EVs and advanced battery technology. There'll be two events on that date, one during the day in the Asia-Pacific region and one during the day in Europe and the Americas. So you should be able to find a time to suit you wherever you are in the world. At either one, you'll be able to get insights from our unparalleled integrated coverage of the renewables, battery and electric vehicles value chains. You'll be able to hear our industry-leading analysts unpack their forecasts for key future-facing commodities, including lithium, nickel, copper, aluminium and rare earths. Learn how technology, geopolitics and regulation are transforming the metals markets as we build an electrified future. To register, go to go.woodmac.com ffcf2024. You can find the details in today's show notes. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang. I'm Ed Crooks. On the show today, we're going to be talking about what is arguably the most important single factor in the whole of the energy transition, and that is investment. The art of turning money into steel and concrete and software and everything else that we need to reduce emissions and build a low-carbon energy system. To talk about that subject, I'm joined today by Amy Myers-Jaffe, who's the Director of the Energy, Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab at New York University. Hi, Amy. Great to have you back again. Great to be here, Ed. And it's also a great pleasure to welcome a newcomer to the show. Dan Goldman is a co-founder and managing director at Clean Energy Ventures, which is a venture capital firm focused on investing in early stage climate tech. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the Energy Gang. Thanks very much for joining us. Ed, so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Now, Dan, before we get into the meat of the show, something we always like to do when we have new people on the show is ask them to talk a little bit about their careers in energy and how they got to be doing what they're doing today. So what's your story in that? What got you interested in energy? How did you get your start in energy? And how did you get into this world of energy investing? Yeah, well, I've been in energy for over 30 years now, and I started my career in oil and gas, advising oil and gas companies all over the world. I moved to Asia in the uh, early 1990s. And while I was there, I made this transition from oil and gas to really more about development and finance of energy infrastructures. That ultimately led me to create the first private equity fund that was focused exclusively on clean energy in the early 2000s. And then when I came back to the US, um, I saw a real opportunity to take what I learned and apply that to the clean energy market. So of course, over the early 2000s, a huge amount of money flowed into that structured finance for clean energy projects. And so after we sold our first portfolio, I was much more interested in solving some of the critical challenges of how do you get clean energy technologies, climate technologies out of the lab, out of the incubators and into the market as fast as possible to address climate change, but also fast because that helped align financial returns as well. And even today, looking back over the last 20 years, this continues to be one of the biggest challenges for climate tech and clean energy, and we can talk more about that later. What I did is started an angel group, and we started making really small investments in deep tech companies. Three of us split off from the angel group, and we formed Clean Energy Ventures. So maybe I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fantastic. Thanks very much for that great introduction. And it clearly makes you the perfect person to be talking about what we want to talk about today. And I want to start off really at the highest possible level and just look at the general picture of clean energy investment. As you say, you've got fantastic amount of experience in this field, decades of experience. It does feel like at the moment we're in a downturn in that business. Obviously, it is cyclical. There have been ups and downs throughout the history of clean energy as an industry, but it feels like 2023 was a pretty bad year for low carbon energy investment in lots of ways. 2024 also seems to be starting off pretty badly as well. We've had that combination of rising interest rates, fears about policy maybe not being so supportive in the future for low carbon energy, perhaps also a bit of a correction to some earlier over-exuberance, whatever the reasons were, and we'll probably try and dig into a few of those reasons in a moment. But whatever the reasons are, shares in clean energy companies have typically underperformed the market over the past year or so. Good metric for this is the iShares Global Clean Energy ETF, sometimes described as the flagship for the sector in terms of listed companies. That has a total cumulative return over the past three years of negative 43% or so. In other words, it's a loss of about 43%. If you look at some of the big individual names in clean energy, look at Tesla, their shares are down about 55% from their peak back in 2021. If you look at Ersted, 
the Danish company, big renewable energy company, formerly oil and gas and fossil fuel power, got into renewables, was seen for a while as the great sort of shining success story of how you could make that transition. They're going through a really rough time at the moment. And at the same time that this is going on, you've had capital flows into climate-focused funds falling sharply. I was looking at a story in the Financial Times the other day that was quoting some data from Morningstar. And that said that climate-focused funds attracted about $38 billion of new investor money last year, and that was down about 75% from what they'd attracted in 2021. And then, Dan, bringing it back perhaps a bit more closely to what you do in terms of private markets, venture capital, flows into clean energy also seem to be well down. Amy, you were showing some numbers with us earlier. In 2023, growth investment was down 41% and Series C funding was down 35%. And that's data from Sightline, who collect data on VC investment and so on. Anyway, put all that together. As I say, it looks like a bit of a downturn. The picture does not look great, I would say, for clean energy investment right now. Dan, how do you see it? Is that an unfair picture that I've just painted? Are things actually better than some of those indicators would suggest? Or is it fair to say that we're in a bit of a a downturn of the cycle right now? You've characterized it quite accurately. But I would say when you peel the onion a bit on the numbers, there are some interesting dynamics. Maybe starting out at the macro level, there have been a lot of reports from Swiss Re, Goldman Sachs, a variety of other analysts who have looked at what we need to be spending every year for the next couple of decades to basically address climate change and reduce greenhouse gases and stabilize temperatures in the atmosphere to less than two degrees, not even 1.5. I think 1.5 degrees is out the window, as it were, now. But this is an extraordinary tall order, given the annual spend level over the past two years, which has been about $1.2 trillion across venture capital, private equity, infrastructure, pretty much everything that can reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And it's woefully low when you consider that half of that $1.2 trillion was spent in China, which is a good thing because China does need to decarbonize. But when we look at Western Europe, we look at the US, we look at emerging markets, we are underspending significantly what we need to be to address climate change. These reports by Swiss Re, Goldman Sachs estimate we need to be spending somewhere between six and nine trillion dollars a year for the next couple of decades. And so We have a real problem if we don't increase our spending. And like you pointed out, we have had declines in venture capital. We've had declines in growth stage capital. We've had declines even in infrastructure. Now, the declines in early stage venture have not been as significant as growth stage venture capital and private equity. And so we're seeing still a pretty strong market in the area that we focus, which is really the series seed and series A rounds that companies are raising to begin to get their technologies out of the lab, commercialize them in demonstration projects, and ultimately scale those technologies. The interesting thing is, in the context of these declines, we do have a pretty robust end-to-end ecosystem with university research, grants from the Department of Energy, the NSF, state grants, philanthropic capital for high-risk, you know, what we would call science projects early stage venture capital, and onward. So we do have investors at all stages. But the one area that we are missing quite a bit of is what's called the missing middle by S2G Builders Vision, which is the fund that was set up by Lucas Walton, one of the Walton family members, the owners of Walmart. And that fund has identified that that commercialization capital is really a huge gap in the market. And if we can't take technologies like our 25 companies in our portfolio and commercialize those technologies, scale them up and get them in the market and get them to be adopted by industry participants, we have no hope of addressing climate change. And obviously, like you point out, if capital is not flowing into those areas, it's because the risk return balance is not right. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. I want to dig into that question of commercialization in a moment. Amy, first, though, I want to give you a chance to come in. Well, you know, clearly the statistics you cited, Ed, are daunting. And of course, Dan knows a lot about what he's talking about. But just a few like bright spot things. You mentioned that I had taken a look at the sightline data. So their Series A cumulative data for 2023 is not nearly as negative. And actually, the number of new climate tech companies is actually still rising. So like Dan is saying, you've got a lot of people coming out of universities, 
coming out of these, you know, incubator or just mindset ecosystems with really interesting technologies or projects or ideas. And so that size, I think, even though overall deal size was smaller, you had actually a lot more companies. So that's like a good thing. It means a lot of people are coming up with thoughtful, interesting ideas. And then the other thing that's happened is that we're getting a shift and we're getting to a shift where the numbers have to be much, much bigger. And so when you're an economist like me, you know, you're always telling people, we write these fancy articles about whether or not public investment in something then deteriorates private sector funding in it. And so one of the big things that people said about the IRA legislation is, you know, public-private partnerships and the government's going to get together with industry. And, you know, you see that with like Redwood and some of these other big ticket items that got invested in. But there has been this shift, and the sightline data really shows this, to the industrial side. So investing more in heavy industry, in clean steel, in recycling metals, and some of these sort of bigger ticket items. And that interests me just because people are always saying, oh, we're never going to get anywhere in the hard-to-abate sectors. And you and I have debated a thousand times whether are we at the time for hydrogen or is hydrogen still just some fantasy that's not actually going to make it to commercialization. So I do think that there's a bit of a trend in that and that the negative stories are a bit focused. A lot of bankruptcies in the automobile sector, right? A lot of really bad news in the deep offshore wind sector, which I think is critical for addressing climate change. So that's a really big negative. But that's a lot of the focus of these statistics that you are reeling off, Ed, come really from the bankruptcies in auto and these, you know, setbacks in big wind. And so I think that that's, you know, relevant to think about what's still hot and what isn't. And then I think, you know, Dan's point about commercialization on the what's still hot is worth exploring. Yeah, thanks very much. So, Dan, just going back to that point about commercialization and the value of death. So what you and Amy have both been saying is actually essentially at the kind of the early stages when we're talking about people having great ideas and getting those ideas funded, that's still pretty active. The ecosystem, as you said, is healthy. People can raise money for those ideas. What happens next? I mean, then presumably you build up your company, you have a brilliant idea, you start your company, you build up a bit, then you're aiming to, I guess, what eventually maybe IPO it or get new kind of private equity funding, or you're looking to find a corporate buyer to take it on and take on the technology and develop it. Is that really the problem then, that there aren't enough buyers of various kinds, both financial and corporate or whoever else, and the stock market's not strong enough to enable companies to kind of take it to the next level in that way? I think there's a part of the market that reflects what you just said, Ed, that the risk profile of a company that has sort of developed a small demonstration project and now wants to build something larger, maybe even a cash flow positive demonstration project, the market is not willing to take that risk. So that might mean tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to build something like that. So you're really moving more into the kind of private equity sphere or or significant growth capital sphere. And if you look at those investors, they want to see technology risk mitigated before they were to fund one of those projects. I think we see a pullback in that market. That's why growth capital has declined faster than early stage. And at the same time, we have higher interest rates. So that has driven returns higher as well, expectations for returns higher as well. And what is partially offset that is that you have a number of groups, some philanthropic, some commercial, that are starting to see that there is this gap, that you can earn attractive risk-adjusted returns in that commercialization stage. And if you do your technology diligence adequately, then you can understand what risks you're taking, what risks you need to be paid more for, what risks you can offset on an engineering procurement construction contractor, maybe risks that you can insure against. But looking across you know, and doing much more diligence as we would do as an early stage investor to really understand where some of those opportunities are attractive. And we're seeing more and more of that. I won't say that's a groundswell of capital flowing into that space, but I would say there's a clear identification of the problem and many smart people out there who want to solve it. Dan, I have a question about kind of that in the sense that when you're talking about these financial players, whether it's institutional investors or whether it's PE firms, like how do people get equipped 
to even make judgments about technologies, you know, because I think that's like a critical avenue, you know, what do firms do to really make sure that they could themselves evaluate the technologies and they're not just, you know, calling the most randomly interesting science professor they know at the school where they went and saying, hey, I'm thinking of buying this thing. What do you think? I mean, what's the process? Well, I'd say there are a lot of private equity firms out there today who have recognized this problem that have built very deep technical and engineering teams to help them not only understand the problem before they invest, but support the companies to mitigate those risks as they're designing, engineering, and constructing that project, commissioning and operating that project. And so I think there are a number of players in the market. I would point to someone like Era Partners that has about $4 billion of capital under management, maybe a bit more now, and has you know really taken an engineering approach and a technical approach to working to scale up, to acquire and scale some of these clean energy technologies, waste to energy, and a variety of other things, um, plastics and chemicals. So that's just one example, but I think there are a lot of different mixes of capital pots out there that can address the technology risk problem. Another area is strategics and industry partners. So there's hundreds now of firms, whether you're talking about cement companies, steel companies, oil companies, chemicals companies, who have corporate venture capital arms. And not only are they investing at the early stage or the Series A, Series B stage, sort of pre-growth stage, they're also interested in forming partnerships with the companies and joint ventures and building projects. So you look at cement companies that have huge challenges on how they decarbonize their operations, and they're leaning into using different carbon, low-carbon cement technologies. They're looking into electrifying their thermal energy going into cement plants and a variety of other things. So that's just one example, but the steel industry is doing the same thing. The mining industry is doing the same thing. The oil and gas industry is doing the same thing. We just, I would say, need to do more and we need to do faster. Well, I think one of the interesting things about that point, actually, is if you look at who were the biggest merger for exits for companies, it was Shell and BP, followed by Schneider Electric. And so, you know, that was not like, you know, an exchange bench thing going to NASDAQ or expansive or whatever. So it is really true, but it's still, you know, not a big universe. And of course... You know, some people are probably listening and offended by the idea that BP or Shell are the biggest off-ramp for commercialization of these companies. It's a great point. We think all avenues are needed. We like to be the carrot, but I have friends who uh, are in litigation against oil companies for climate change, and uh, I call them the stick. And so I think it, it may take, you know, all angles to move the planet toward decarbonization. So what does that process look like then when it goes well and you get that idea that comes out of the lab into demonstration to a pilot and then gets commercialized and deployed well? Can you give us an example of one you'd point to and say, look, this is really how the process should work? Well, I'm not sure there are a lot of perfect examples, but I would say that there are a number of examples where companies have used more or less an inefficient capital stack by raising hundreds of millions of dollars of equity. Now, they've raised that equity, so those equity providers have felt like the technology works, they can deploy it at scale, and they're willing to take that risk. And you know, Redwood is a pretty good example of that. I mean, Redwood now has a loan guarantee, but Redwood has raised, I think, upwards of $4 billion of equity for recycling critical minerals, recycling uh, waste from battery plants, and uh, turning them into cathode materials. So that's an example of perhaps not the most efficient capital stack because it's all equity. You know, in that $4 billion, there's no project finance, there's no corporate debt, there is a DOE loan guarantee associated with that. But that's an example where investors were willing to take the risk. There are examples of companies that have raised hybrid corporate equity capital and corporate debt to basically deploy more solar, deploy more wind. And that's not necessarily taking a lot of technology risk, but some of them have a little bit of technology risk. And that's where that structure, I think, has been useful to help the equity providers get adequate returns for taking that risk. So, I mean, I think that 
you know, what Dan's saying makes a lot of sense. And of course, to my point that the U.S. government played a role, because one of the reasons why people feel really comfortable doing utility scale solar, and even now utility scale solar with batteries, is because the loan office took that risk during the era in 2009 to 2012 and proved out all those projects. And people did well with those projects. The government didn't really have, you know, a failure with any of those utility scale projects. So, um, and people were able to turn them over. Ironically, some of them got sold out to buyers from South Korea and other foreign countries. So the ownership didn't even stay in the United States. But basically, you know, a lot of those projects were proven out. I think where it starts to be more difficult is we keep trying to come up with innovative ways of doing the same thing without the U.S. government. So, you know, the big great vision was to do it using special purpose vehicles, the SPACs. And of course, those SPACs just did unbelievably poorly. And there was a lot of catastrophe in the SPACs, especially in the sort of EV charging and some of the other spaces where we really needed it to succeed. And there were just some companies that were overvaluated. And it was a great company, you know, like Proterra, right? Where just the whole frenzy and then the post frenzy was really damaging. And how do we square that knot? And Dan, I'd like to hear your opinion on this because, you know, especially in the SPAC world, but I think in general too, there was this thing, you know, co-invest and you know, take equity because that's the way you're going to make big money with these companies and you're going to profit from these giant valuations. And, you know, Tesla was the model story. But then now a lot of investors that did that lost money and some of these guys went under. And so now you have the reverse appetite where now you're afraid to do that. And it turned out to be very damaging. So we need these sort of innovative finance structures, but, you know, SPACs are 100%, I think, off the table. What do you think, Dan? I agree with everything you said about SPACs and the public markets in general. When you look back at the SPAC market and, you know, being down over 90% from their offering prices, many of those companies were not in a position to go public. There's a huge difference between raising low-cost capital and creating liquidity events. And I believe that most of the investors who wanted to emerge their climate tech companies into SPACs were looking for liquidity. They weren't necessarily looking for low cost of capital in the public markets, which it actually is. So what you had was misaligned incentives. And for those reasons, you had companies that had no business going public. They were not ready to be public companies. They didn't have stable revenues and earnings. They didn't have enough revenues and earnings. Most of them were pre-revenue. And we saw a frenzied market where demand pushed valuations higher only to be rationalized over time. And those valuations went way below the offering price, close to back to where the companies were valued in the private markets, which is where they still should be. So I think, yeah, you characterize it quite well. But that was also kind of the whole, how do we commercialize a good company? Because it just burns so much capital to launch these companies, especially when you're in a big infrastructure play or you're in a big manufacturing play. And I don't have it at my fingertips, but I've seen the, like Bloomberg New Energy Finance, you know, tracks the capital requirements of companies. And a lot of companies went from positive to negative in 2022, 2023, as they matured, there was just this deep cash requirements that went way beyond revenues. And that was really the big problem in the sector. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, when we look at our portfolio, we are looking for companies like EnthCycle, which is in the critical minerals recovery space, Line Vision, which we can talk about later in the transmission line monitoring space, Connect DER, which has a meter collar deployed at the residential level. These are all companies that they're scaling up their technologies. And when we look at how we want them to scale, we want them to scale you know, as fast as possible, but under reasonable and sustainable capital stack positions. So it's not feasible for them to take hundreds of millions of debt onto their balance sheet. It's feasible for them to take some equity, small amounts of debt, scale up to the next level, raise more equity, and eventually get to commercialization, leveraging strategic partners wherever possible because they often provide capital for the projects. They often will invest in the company, and they'll also be an off-taker of your product offerings so that you can then, once you're operating, refinance the project 
take some equity out and layer some debt into that project. You have to get through the construction and early operations phase. So I think part of the problem is just the mindset, right? Because what you're describing, maybe even for your own investors, takes a long time. But everybody has these exit plans. You know, is it a three-year window for exit? If it's a five-year window for exit, nobody has a 10 or 20-year window for exit. And then even the people who are behind, like the founders or the original investors, would tell me if you think I'm wrong. I'm going to be very unpopular with the listeners for making this (laughs) statement. I think there's a group of people who viewed some of these opportunities as a get-rich-quick. Right. I would agree with you. We've tried to stay away from investors who have that mindset because we're quite forthright and honest with our limited partner investors about the historical timeframes that it takes to invest in companies and bring them to scale such that they're an acquisition candidate or you know, it takes even longer if you want them to be a public markets opportunity. So we look at strategic sale as the primary exit vehicle. And we say that takes, you know, at a minimum four years and more like six or seven years. And we try to be honest about that. We look at our historical track record. I mean, we've been doing this since 2005. So we've been in the space longer than most. And, you know, we have a lot of valuation discipline. We have a lot of tech diligence that we conduct. And so I like to think that one, that results in fewer failures, but also in more rationality around how we can offer outsized returns by being very sensitive to valuation and efficient about capital scale up, and also just realistic about timeframes. I won't say we have all the answers though. <laughs> I mean, does that conflict with the mindset of the climate emergency, right? Because you know, you're telling us we've got to go from one trillion to nine trillion. And if we take in a cautious approach so that we don't make these giant mistakes or push companies to the brink of bankruptcy by rushing them along, maybe we're not gonna do the job. So I don't know. I mean, what's the solution? Yeah, I think there's a disconnect there in that we're not going to be able to bring all the new technologies we need into the market as quickly as we need to. But we do have sufficient technologies today to start building out large-scale wind, build out more solar. If you look at the last two years, residential solar is, is almost dead because of interest rates. And we have such challenges around our grid and our transmission system and interconnect queues that we aren't able to put nearly enough wind and solar into the market at the utility scale as we need to be doing. I mean, we could be spending tens of trillions of dollars on that alone, including offshore wind, which, Ed, as you pointed out, has hit up against some really significant cost challenges, as has most of the industry. So there are challenges with interconnect, there are challenges with interest rates and capital costs. And that's part of the reason we haven't seen the deployment. So question, what more could governments be doing to help both US government and other governments around the world? Right, Everyone says they are committed to the goals of the Paris Agreement. That was what they all signed up to back in 2015. As you say, it doesn't look like investment at the moment is flowing at anything like the rate we need to achieve those goals. Therefore, surely it should be on governments to do more to ensure that the capital does flow. But as you said, you've talked about some ways in which government can make a difference, can help investors get comfortable with investing in companies, loan guarantees, other things that are done, grants, tax credits, I guess you could also include in that, which all help private capital to flow. Is your point then that Although the government already seems to be doing quite a bit, it's just nowhere near enough still. Is there much more that could be done? And if so, what? Well, I would say that there's always more that could be done. I was fortunate today to be talking to a former, very senior White House official. And my question for him was, what do you think the US government should be doing about our transmission grid and distribution grid? Because I view that as really a root cause of our ability to deploy more capital in wind and solar. Now, the US government only has some control over fixing the challenges of our transmission grid. We have federal oversight, we have state public utility commission oversight, we have regional transmission organizations. It's a balkanized system at many different levels, and it's therefore extremely hard to fix the problem and to get utilities on the same page as investors in terms of what is needed to move more clean electrons into the market. In fact, the system that we have today is really not designed for what we're doing right now. It's designed for nuclear power plants and coal power plants 
in the locations they were. We have to redesign our electricity system, perhaps using things like AI to better manage the movements across the grid and things like line vision, grid enhancing technologies to better monitor our grid. But right now, the chances of fixing the grid such that we can bring more capacity on, more clean energy capacity on, looks very challenging. There are only a few states that are really starting to recognize the transmission interconnect queue and address it. But until we do that, I think we have a, a root cause of limiting our ability to deploy. Of course, we have interest rates and higher costs, and those play a factor. But I think interconnect is the biggest factor. On February the 26th, in Orlando, Florida, Distributech 2024 gets underway. Distributech is the premier annual event for energy transmission and distribution, and the Energy Gang is partnering with the event. We'll be recording a special episode from the conference, which will be out on Thursday the 29th as the event wraps up. You can claim 20% of your registration for the event by using the promo code DTPART33 at distributech.com. Join us at the event or via the podcast as we explore the latest advances that are shaping the future of energy production. Right, so that's a good point, I think, to get into a couple of the specific companies that you're investing in at Clean Energy Ventures. And let's talk about Line Vision, which you were just mentioning. As you say, so there is this fundamental problem that the United States in particular has, but actually I think it's true in many parts of Europe as well. I know for a fact it's very much the case in the UK and several other places around the world. It's really hard to build new power transmission infrastructure. And so you look at things like and the various ways you could measure this. But one of the things that we follow at Wood McKenzie is the question of how long it takes a new power generation project to get interconnection to the grid. And a few years ago, let's say five years ago, that might have been a couple of years it would take you. Now it's up to six or eight years. Apparently, we expect that by the end of this decade, you'll be having to wait eight to 10 years, typically, to get a new project connected to the grid. It's absolutely insane. It means it's crazy. As you say, given, in particular, the urgency of the challenge we face, it's absolutely mad that we have these very, very long delays. But then you have various companies doing things broadly coming under the category of what they call grid-enhancing technologies that offer ways around that and offer things that you could do without actually physically putting new power lines in. So do you want to talk a little bit about Line Vision then? What is it they do and how can they help with this issue of grid congestion? Yeah. First of all, I think it's important to say that Line Vision was spun out of a company called Genscape, which became a Wood McKenzie company. Oh, indeed. And That's so right. there are lots of great historical lineage to Wood Mackenzie, which we love to see. Yeah, no, that's very true. There is a historic connection. Also, actually, full disclosure, I should say that a colleague of mine, um, a great guy called Chris Seipel, he's actually an advisor to Line Vision. So as I say, just in the interest of full disclosure, I should put that on the record, but not influencing anything we're going to be saying about it now, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. So at Clean Energy Ventures Fund 1 invested in Line Vision in around 2020, 2019, 2020, and what we saw was, you know, back then even, uh, a situation where utilities really had no idea how to operate their grid between substations. And so you had all these wires, you had lots of congestion, and they didn't have localized weather forecasts. They didn't understand wind speed at different locations. And so it was very hard to understand what the dynamic line rating, in other words, how much power you could flow over the over transmission lines was at any given location. And that caused huge amounts of congestion on the system. And frequently, that congestion prevented wind and solar from getting onto the system. So you had wind available, you had the sun shining, but you couldn't deploy those kilowatt hours onto the system. And so when we looked at line vision, studies by EPRI projected that some 40% of wind and solar was not being dispatched because of transmission constraints. So we saw the use case of line vision which basically has a technology for using LIDAR, which you know I think most of us are aware of for driving today for autonomous vehicles. And then you also using thermal sensing to understand the dynamic line rating, how much power you can move across the transmission line at any given moment in time. And their technology can be deployed on a tower rather than directly onto the lines. So it's much easier to install and it can look down a few miles of the transmission line span and provide the utility with a huge amount of data about 
dynamic line rating, line health, whether there's any vegetation that's impeding the line, and line awareness. So things like wind and storms are also monitored by the technology. So this is a huge amount of information that you're providing to the utility that heretofore they never had before. And you mentioned the UK, which Line Vision has done pilot projects in the UK. And an independent study in the UK estimated that 6 million pounds is lost a day due to transmission congestion. So for the course of the year, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars of losses as a result of transmission constraints on that system. Line Vision's technology can easily correct many of those constraints and reallocate movement of power on other lines. So that's why we saw the opportunity there as incredibly interesting. And we're very, very thankful that Line Vision has been scaling. They're in about 10 plus of US utilities, and of course in the UK, and a number of other countries with scale deployments. And they also took advantage of federal infrastructure legislation that provided what was called GRIP funding for utilities. And they partnered with a number of utilities, received some federal funding so that they could do scale deployments in new areas as well. So Amy, what do you think about these companies then? It's Line Vision and various others were operating in the same kind of area, which are essentially trying to make better use of existing infrastructure so you can get more power down the same lines. Do you think this is a promising area? I think it's really promising. And for all the reasons that Dan said, but also just the opportunity over time between machine learning and AI is just going to get bigger and better. And so I think the interesting opportunity is not only to need less infrastructure because we're able to get the existing infrastructure or some upgrade in the infrastructure to work better, but how do you get utilities involved? Because one of the things, you know, I got my little piece of paper here, wave it around, right? With uh, what were the most active climate acquirers in uh, 2023. And when I looked down this list of all the different companies that are big players, there's no utilities. I mean, when you think about the opportunities, like the kind of opportunity Dan's talking about, and you think about the utility sector, first of all, in the United States, that's like a crime, that there isn't more utility going around and being able to take that step. Everything's just so conservative. And then you have some players that act like they're really incumbents and they're just trying to squash anything that's innovative. And then when you go internationally, it's an even deeper problem because in places like India and notably in, say, South Africa and some of the big emitting countries, the utilities, the state utility, which you know has a giant market share or in some cases their monopoly, are deeply indebted, facing bankruptcy, not able to really raise capital, can't do these kind of upgrades that are just so important. And so you're having to think about, again, you know, what's the financing paradigm to help like ESCOM of South Africa or some of the Indian utilities? Like, how are we going to manage that? Because we're not going to reach the achievements that we need to do to make progress on climate change without being able to rescue those entities. Yeah, so those are fantastic points, Dan. I mean, as Amy's just saying, the utility industry is inherently deeply conservative. Utilities very often state-owned or own regulated returns. And so the main thing they really have to worry about is keeping the lights on. If you're running your utility, you just have to keep the lights on to the best of your ability. Everything else is secondary. You do not have a massive incentive at all to innovate. And also, as I was saying, around the world, in many places, utilities are under extreme financial pressure and certainly don't have the capital available to kind of back innovation, take risks. So how do you persuade people that this kind of technological advance, this kind of innovation is actually something that's going to pay them benefits and is worth spending money on? Well, I think Line Vision has it right in that they would go in and talk to the head of transmission in a utility and say, look, we are not here to replace your plans to build new transmission lines. We need new transmission lines. What we're here to do is help you get the most out of your existing system so that you know in a more intelligent fashion where to build new lines. If you can fix a transmission constraint where you are going to build a new line, don't build a new line there. Build a new line where you need to put new generation. So the utilities have generally been very open to the idea of this combination of we need new lines and we need grid enhancing technologies to help us understand where those new lines need to go. 
no one's trying to tell the utilities, and I think no one believes that we don't need a much improved transmission grid in the United States because our transmission grid is 100 years old. So I think it's generally recognized that we have to upgrade our transmission grid. Maybe there'll be some new technologies like Veer or others that are doing kind of superconducting transmission lines. But even so, either way, we understand and the utilities appreciate because they are at a rate of return on those lines that more transmission is needed. Got it. Yeah, well, certainly the future of that company is going to be a really interesting one to watch. And that whole sector of grid enhancing technology is definitely something to uh, keep a close eye on for the future. I want to talk about another company also that you've invested in. And well, I'll, I'll talk a bit about why I'm, I'm so interested in why it caught it eye. But well, first thing, I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce the name. It's spelled O-X-C-C-U. Do you say O-X-C-C-U? Do you say Ox? CCU, how do you pronounce them? We say Ox CCU, and that reflects its history of being spun out of Oxford University. Right, right, got it. So Ox CCU then is developing sustainable aviation fuel, which is what they call an e-fuel, where they aim to take hydrogen and carbon dioxide, react them together to create an e-fuel that can be used in jet airliners. Of course, as is pretty well known, I think it's very hard to find decarbonization solutions for aviation. You can have battery-powered aircraft. They probably can fly, but probably over short distances. If you're thinking about going long haul, you really need something else. And so some kind of zero carbon fuel is probably going to be the only way you can do that. My big problem with these e-fuels, though, the thing I worry about is what I think of as the Star Trek problem, as in that old, you know, the Scotty line, you cannot change the laws of physics, chemistry, whatever. But my science is probably being strained a bit at this point. But the point being that combining carbon dioxide and hydrogen to make a compound is essentially a hydrocarbon is basically what they call an endothermic reaction. In other words, it requires heat. And obviously the reverse of that, if you take gasoline or aviation fuel, whatever, and burn it, you release carbon dioxide. And that's an exothermic reaction, which generates heat. And so that's a lot easier to do. And that feels like then those endothermic reactions, that feels like if that's what you're always trying to do, you're sort of trying to push water uphill, if you like, and that's always going to build in inefficiency and cost into that system whenever you try and do it. As I say, that is based on a fairly cursory understanding of the science, though. So, Dan, maybe I'm wrong about that. I mean, when I think about these e-fuels, what do you see in a company like OxyCU? What makes you think that they can be viable and they're worth backing? Well, Ed, it's a great point. And there are a number of considerations we have to look at, efficiency, cost being two of the most important. If our goal is to decarbonize or certainly radically reduce the carbon intensity of the fuels business, then it's highly likely that if we're using electrochemical processes and starting with electricity, then making hydrogen, then making e-fuels, we probably aren't going to be as efficient as a cracker in a refinery. But a cracker in a refinery has an enormous carbon footprint. So you can't have it both ways. If we want to decarbonize the fuel sector because we don't have any alternatives, and particularly in jet fuel, as you point out, then we're going to have to maybe go to a lower efficiency process compared to what we have. But our goal, and, and this is how we looked at OxCCU, is to find a technology with a cost entitlement that could ultimately at scale be competitive with conventional jet fuel. And we believe OxCCU is really the only company that can do that. And I would like to highlight on our team, you know, we have Mika Ben-Naim, who's a electrochemical PhD. We have Lushik, who's a physicist, as you said, the laws of physics and the laws of chemistry. We have Jeff Weiss, who is a patent expert who reviewed their patents. We have John Wisniewski, who is one of our venture partners who worked for Exxon Chemicals for 30 years and really knows catalytic processes. So when we went into Diligence OxCCU, we brought a team that could really understand what they were doing and whether this is something that could work. And the simplest way to describe OxCCU compared to other e-fuels companies is they are a one-step process from CO2 and hydrogen all the way to jet fuel. And when you look at other processes in this space, they're generally two steps. You have to first turn CO2 into CO. That sounds simple, you know, you're just kind of taking one oxygen out, but it is an incredibly hard process that involves a technology called reverse water gas shift, really elegant name. And it's an expensive process and it's an energy intensive process and it's a catalytic process. So effectively, if you want to make jet fuel from CO2 and hydrogen, and again, we want to do it from CO2 because we want to reduce 
CO2 from all sorts of point source emissions and biogenic CO2 and turn it into something usable. But if you take a traditional route, you have two steps, two very expensive steps, because after you turn that CO2 into CO, then you have to put the hydrogen and the CO into a Fischer-Tropsch reactor. And that's how you get the liquid out of that reactor using a cobalt-based catalyst traditionally. There are lots of interesting variations on that theme, but by and large, almost every CO2 and hydrogen to jet fuel process requires a two-step process. And OxyCU has come up with a new catalyst that is a one-step process. And we believe that offers a huge cost entitlement in this industry. Okay, that does sound interesting. And they've got some big name partners, right? United Airlines is involved in some way? Yeah. So when we came in and started looking at this, there were already a number of oil companies and United Airlines looking at investing. And the company, I think, wisely wanted to have a, like a financial lead leading the round. And so we were happy once we did our diligence to step into that role and corral a number of very, very large strategics who wanted to invest in the round and who I think are going to be critical for their scaling up. Right. Who else is involved then apart from United now? So we have United Airlines, we have Trafigura, which is in the energy and minerals trading business. We have Saudi Ramco, a sustainability fund, and we have ENI, a uh, Italian state oil company. ENI Next has a, a very good technology group. And so we're excited to have all of them because we think they're critical and can be major customers of the technology, they're all in the jet fuel business and they'll trade jet fuel and use jet fuel in the case of United Ventures. Uh, so we're, we're very excited to have that consortium. Yeah, that is very interesting. And back to Amy's point about the oil and gas companies being critical players often in supporting the commercialization of these innovations. Amy, what's your take on uh, e-fuels? Is it something you think is uh, promising? So I think one of the interesting challenges for the oil and gas industry, a lot of times people are talking about they have an oil field somewhere and is that going to get stranded? But the challenge about how to retire or repurpose downstream refining units, I think is a bigger challenge for the industry. And that gets to, you know, if you're going to start turning off plants that make diesel fuel or you don't have as much gasoline demand to sell that part of the barrel, you know, what's your long-term jet fuel plan? Because, of course, jet fuel is this very premium product that comes out of the refining system and you have to make all the other products to get it. You know, there's four or five products. You don't just get jet fuel. So I do think it's something that the companies really need to focus on and always looking for interesting opportunities and the competition right now is plain vanilla. You know, am I going to take something that's waste energy or some kind of biofuel and use that? So I'm always a little skeptical on who's going to win. I mean, the promising thing is that you do have some flights operating today that are operating not on traditional oil-based jet fuel. But where the winner is going to be, I think, is still kind of hard to say. And I do think a key is that this is a sector where having a smart oil and gas partner and having an oil and gas company that realizes that there's going to be an opportunity where it's going to be more profitable to turn off refining some places and being able to make the jet fuel in a different process. There's going to be a smart company out there that understands that and they're going to be a winner. Yeah, no, thanks very much. That is very interesting. So I think we should just about wrap it up here. I wanted, just before we get onto free electrons at the end, I just wanted to kind of get a final thought from you about where this leaves you both, broadly speaking, in terms of thinking about the climate challenge. And given everything that we've been talking about for the past hour or so, given where we are in terms of this huge gap, I mean, that's still, I think, the most alarming thing I've heard in the course of our conversation is that gap between the, the one trillion or so a year that's actually been invested and the six, seven, eight, nine trillion that we actually need. But also a lot of positive elements, a lot of innovation, a lot of activity going on out there, a lot of people working really hard on this problem, coming up with good ideas and getting supported. How does this leave you feeling about our ability as humankind? kind to actually tackle this threat of climate change and address it in a way that's going to avoid catastrophic outcomes for the planet. Dan, what do you think? Well, I'm both encouraged and discouraged. <laughs> I'm discouraged by the capital markets and the deployment of capital. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm, I'm saying it's a function of the way capital markets work. And we, we need to be cognizant of that and try to repair it to perhaps bring that risk-return balance back into equilibrium so that more capital is deployed in the places it's needed. 
I'm encouraged by the level of innovation, the number of companies that have been created. They're not all going to survive. We should not doubt that. But we have some absolutely passionate and amazing founders with incredible technical expertise who are commercializing radical innovations that really can have an impact on climate change. And I'm really encouraged by that. And I love working with our leadership teams because they give me a lot of inspiration and encouragement and a positive outlook for the future. As another example, not just the innovators, but companies like Google are doing quite amazing things. I was at a conference and listened to someone from Google on the AI side was using AI to reduce contrails of planes, which cause effect, according to Google, 1% of GHG emissions in the atmosphere by rerouting planes using AI. So they've already got a plan to use AI, reroute planes using existing routing systems, and eliminate or at least reduce significantly contrails in the sky that are causing greenhouse gas. That's an amazing thing. Doesn't cost a huge amount of money. You don't have to build any huge projects, but it has a material impact. And so I do think the promise of AI is very, very interesting. I don't think we should think about it as solving every problem on earth, but I do think there's a very significant role that AI can play in helping us perhaps bring things to market faster and address really challenging technical and engineering issues. Yeah, that is a fascinating example. And as you say, a very hopeful sign about some of the ways that technological progress is going to help us address these issues. Amy, where do you come out on this? More encouraged, more discouraged? Well, I agree with Dan. There's just an explosion of amazing ideas and people coming up with solutions. Absolutely. I'm going to talk about AI in a minute when we do free electrons. There are just so many different applications that could be really, really enabling. The problem is we have really a broken financial system when it comes to innovation. And that's both in the United States. I mean, I think the U.S. government has embraced a good positive step with the Inflation Reduction Act because it's broad. It's not focused on, you know, the way the IRA was just focused on basically solar deployment. I mean, this you're having this wide variety of bets some of which won't pay out, but a lot of which are going to bring more and more of these technologies and ideas to market. I think the real problem is we have a justice issue, the way finance is organized, you know, where we have countries that are dealing with climate change. So I think the real challenge is not just in the U.S. ecosystem, right, how to get consistent capital, but we have capital sitting on the sidelines that, oh, it's too risky, it's too risky, And oil prices went up for one year because of the crisis in Europe. And so everybody piled in to go back into investing in those companies. But what about why is this other technology just too risky, even if it's something that's going to really, really promising? So there needs to be sort of a a way of bringing in the sidelined institutional capital. And it has to be beyond just philanthropic capital, right? We have to make institutional capital comfortable investing in these solutions and the commercial scale-up. But then when we go abroad to the global south, problems even bigger, where you have financial stress, partly because of climate change uh, and partly because of other reasons. And if we can't bring capital to many, many countries around the world because of their debt structure and the way we have an appetite or don't have an appetite about investing in a particular place, whether that's a place in Africa or Southeast Asia, you know, again, giant problem not being tackled. So that side of the equation really, really depresses me. I spent a lot of time thinking about it with, unfortunately, not too much of a productive Again, I believe that the carbon offsets market has a huge potential, but all this disarray we're seeing in that market about verification and credibility uh, is really slowing that down. And it's really unfortunate because when you try to think about, you know, how are we going to do this? The green bond market doesn't really solve the problem because you have a lot of countries that can't issue a bond, period and a lot of utilities that are bankrupt and can't issue a bond. So we really need to come up with a different way of doing this. And I still think that carbon markets and carbon pricing is going to be a critical piece of that. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. I do definitely think that's something we're going to hear a lot more about during the course of this year. And I'm sure we'll be talking about it on the show a lot more during the course of this year, because, of course, that is an absolute priority for the UN during the course of 2024, aiming at COP29 in Azerbaijan in November, which is meant to be setting out this new collective quantified goal for climate finance, which is essentially, Amy, addressing exactly that issue you've been talking about. How do you mobilise the capital that we need around the world to address climate change, both in terms of reducing emissions and in terms of adapting to the impacts of climate change? So certainly it is a item that's kind of top of the global agenda at the moment. It's absolutely something that people are addressing and thinking about. But as you say, it's a really difficult problem. Anyway, more on that to come. We do have to leave it there. Before we go, our free electrons, personal items that we've brought in. Amy, you were just talking about yours. You say you've got one. What's yours? Well, so when I was watching some of the panels at Davos, there was a great AI panel and the head of Pfizer was there and he talked about how using AI has really sped up the process for testing different combinations of materials to come up with a successful drug. I think we're going to be able to do that in the battery space. And of course, today, the Chinese announced that they see that opportunity. And Ed, you know, I'm so very focused with my 2024 prediction of what technology am I watching on uh, solid state batteries. So the Chinese announced they're having a new all solid state battery collaborative innovation platform, so C-A-S-I-P, that is going to bring cattle and BYD and uh, Goshen and uh, NEO all into the same grouping. They see it as a competitive imperative that Toyota and the Korean companies and American companies don't have a breakthrough in solid state batteries and Chinese is left with technologies that become obsolete. So that's my free electron. I'm still... You know, I don't know. Could this be my mantra? This uh, solid state battery thing. I'm just obsessing about it. And uh, apparently maybe the Chinese are listening to the show and they're becoming obsessive about it too. <laughs> and obviously not listening to me being quite skeptical about solid state batteries, which I feel is a technology that has promised very much down the years and still so far delivered very little. But Dan, what's your free electron? Well, I'm going to do a family plug here because my wife, Diana Goldman, is a plant-based chef, teacher, and chemist, and she is about to publish a plant-based cookbook to help the world reduce its GHG footprint. As she likes to say, the single most impactful thing you can do for the environment is eat plant-based. And I fully believe that. And of course, here we are talking about energy, the intersection of energy, agriculture, and processing of food to get it to our grocery stores uses an enormous amount of energy. And if we can use plants instead of animals, then we will reduce our greenhouse gas emissions footprint rather considerably. So her cookbook is called The Beantown Kitchen Cookbook, and it will be available in the coming months. Thank you for that family plug. <laughs> no, it's a pleasure. Certainly 100% agree with you, as you say, the importance of shifting towards a more plant-based diet. I've been doing a bit of that myself. I certainly eat a lot less meat now, I feel, than I used to a few years ago. I've not been able to go wholly plant-based, but perhaps once I get your wife's cookbook, that'll be the thing that'll just finally make it possible for we unlock those doors. My free electron, very, very quickly, just watching the Super Bowl, and this is essentially, I'm just stealing an idea from Sammy Roth, who's a very good environment columnist and reporter at the LA Times, pointing out about the commercials in the Super Bowl, where obviously it's often kind of the theme of the commercials in the Super Bowl often kind of captures the mood of the nation. I think a couple of years ago, it was crypto seemed to be the thing. All the commercials were about crypto. Last year, I feel like there was a lot of EV advertising and it seemed like people were kind of building up for 2023 to be the year of EVs. Obviously, it didn't quite happen and EV performance was disappointing in some ways in the US market last year. So obviously, the Super Bowl is not always a great guide. This year, there seemed to be no theme at all and certainly not a kind of energy or climate related theme to the advertising. There seemed to be a lot of TV stations advertising themselves and some retailers advertising and so on. I can work out really what was going on. General quality of the, of the commercial seemed very poor. So 
Although it was an interesting development in terms of the energy supply for the Super Bowl, which is the Allegiant Stadium, signed a deal with NV Energy for 100% renewable energy. And I think, as it were, true 100% renewables in the sense that they weren't just buying credits, but they actually had a supply from a solar and storage plant that could provide enough power to match the stadium's usage while the entire game was on and using storage even then after dark to keep the lights on. So in that sense, it was interesting from a climate and energy perspective. But as I say, the mood of the nation, the kind of the temperature taking that you get from watching Super Bowl commercials did not seem very positive for the energy transition. And that was certainly something which I guess you could read as another negative sign. So something to watch out for next year, perhaps better news then. So unfortunately, we do have to leave it there. Many thanks to you, Amy. Thanks very much for having me. And many thanks to you, Dan. Thanks a lot for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again another time. Thank you, Ed. Thanks to our producers, Sam Nash and Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And above all, of course, many thanks to all of you for listening. Please do keep your feedback coming. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms if you want to get in touch. Comments, corrections, complaints, whatever it might be. We're always very keen to hear your feedback, even praise if you have some of that. But for now, goodbye from us. And we'll be back in two weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Thank you.